Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the sixth season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, a jury of his peers. For more information, including photos and video, go to ajcbreakdown.com. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Breakdown and at AJC Courts. And new this season, join the Breakdown Facebook group to meet our journalists and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. All we have is a bullet, but no gun. The evidence was not given that it was handled by him. His fingerprints were nowhere to be found. The main thing that got me on it was the video at the Valero where he showed him going to the car with the book bag and obviously the book bag was in the car at the Burger King. I mean that's pretty much the easiest way to come up with that. I didn't believe a word he said. He had no motivation to tell the truth. Clearly this is not a person who is in the habit of telling the truth. I found no reason to believe him. Welcome back to this final episode of Season 6 of Breakdown. I'm Kevin Riley, Editor-in-Chief at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the foreman of the jury in the Nicholas Benton murder case. And I'm Bill Rankin, Legal Affairs Writer at the AJC. As I'm fond of saying, if you're enjoying this podcast and want to support this kind of journalism, please subscribe to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Go to myajc.com slash subscribe. Remember how at the beginning of this podcast, I was confused about the guy at the defense table? He was wearing a suit, so at first I mistook him for a lawyer. He was, as you recall, the defendant. But they didn't bring him into court in leg chains from the jail. He walked in from outside, like everybody else. He was accompanied by others, including his parents. You may be wondering, as I was, why Nicholas Benton was out on bond since he was accused of a double murder. But that's not so uncommon in Fulton County. Accused killers frequently bond out and remain free until they stand trial. So this was very strange for us on the jury. We had breaks in the proceedings, like at lunch. When we walked outside into the hallway, Nicholas Benton was right there. We encountered him and his family daily, both inside and outside the courtroom. Each time I happened to make eye contact with his parents, I would have this bolt of momentary panic and avert my eyes. I didn't want to do anything that might cause a problem in court. As Elizabeth and Joe noted earlier, making eye contact with Benton himself was not an issue. He never seemed to be looking at anybody, but this also meant that we saw Benton a lot, not just sitting at the defense table. If you asked me to pick one feature that was distinctive and descriptive of Nicholas Benton, I would have said his walk. Here's lead detective Scott Berhalter. It was pretty distinct walk. It had the whole kind of side to side, but going forward, 
This is a, more like a waddle, I guess you could say. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm trying to say anything derogatory about Mr. Benton, but uh, he had a, a unique walk that we all noticed. And then obviously that a walk that he was known for by people that knew him. That's as close as I could describe it. He walked with a bit of a shuffle, the toes of his feet pointed outward. His shoulders swayed back and forth in an exaggerated manner, his arms swinging at his sides. Here's Assistant District Attorney Kara Convery. The feet are the first thing you notice, um, and then you kind of see how he leans. He really puts his shoulders into each side of his, there's a heavy lean on each side. He moves his arms a lot when he walks, and the feet are almost perfect first position, moving back and forth. I mean, it's, he has a really strong turnout. Gerald Griggs, Benton's lawyer, said he thought the fact that the jury could see his client walk was a good thing. That was something that I hoped the jury would see. See the size difference, see him actually in life walking around, see how he carries himself. So I thought it was a benefit. He was right about one thing. It was important for us to see the walk. I had seen him in the hallways, seen him walk. So I I really just thought it was important for me to see the way he walked on the tape. I saw him walking with his grandfather two or three times, passing by us, going to the courtroom and all. So that time also I saw his walk. That means these jurors are using information that's not part of the sworn testimony or the evidence entered into the trial. That's pretty unusual. In fact, in his instructions to the jury, Judge Goger said, and I quote, The evidence includes all of the testimony of the witnesses and any exhibits admitted during the trial, unquote. It doesn't say anything about independent observations by the jury outside the courtroom. But this was going on right in front of us. We couldn't ignore it. You'll recall we asked to see the videos again. We watched them twice. One of a man with a distinct walk outside the Valero gas station. Another was of Benton in a Publix, where he runs into the mother of Quincy Fat Weish. And the two have a long conversation. Because we face decisions of such gravity, the members of the jury were stressed at times, and I tried to stay aware of the pressure we were all feeling. Well, maybe not all of us. It was late on a Friday afternoon. A few of the jurors just wanted to get this over with and go home. But some had to work through their concerns about the evidence. Human dynamics came into play. People interrupted each other. They came up with things that had no basis in the evidence. And we even got ensnared in a debate that really shouldn't have mattered. You'll recall that Quincy Weish was Nicholas Benton's friend. In the mountain of evidence presented at trial, A simple question for the jury was, if Benton did kill Reggie Koiku, why would he then turn on Fat Weish and kill him? If we're to believe the prosecution's case, that's exactly what he did. Remember that interview Benton had with police? Okay, who was with you? It was just me, me and Fat. And he said what was going on? No, it was just like a a normal day. You know, he went with me every day. Okay. He He was a good friend. So a lot of us were thinking, why would Nick shoot at a, quote, good friend of mine, unquote. I was able to maintain order throughout the deliberation, but my performance wasn't flawless. For one thing, I didn't understand a pretty basic principle of the law. When a jury has to be unanimous. 
I knew that to convict the defendant on any charge, we had to agree he was guilty of that charge. But what if we wanted to acquit on any given charge? Did we have to be unanimous about that too? In other words, did we have to be unanimous about our decisions on every charge? And if we weren't, did that mean we were a hung jury and I'd wasted a week of my life? Shouldn't I have known the answers to those questions? I put the question about being unanimous to the deputy. Note to self, next time, don't ask the deputy about points of law. He gave me a look. So I decided at that moment, we should aim to be unanimous on every charge, guilty or not. And if we can't all agree, I'll get an answer to this question later. Of course, I found out after the trial that it isn't necessary for a jury to be unanimous at all times. If the jury can't agree unanimously to convict on a charge, then they are hung on that charge. But that just means the defendant isn't guilty of the charge. During the hours of deliberation, I had to make judgments. Do I let a debate go on or do I cut it off? Debates can go on forever, but if I cut them off, then someone might feel his or her voice isn't being heard. So some of the most important decisions for me were when to let a debate go on or when to cut it off. Some jurors were impatient with those decisions. Others tried to fend off any unrest. Here's Joe Ransom. The main thing I could think was to keep calm head, keep, try to keep a little bit of peace, uh, give the knowledge of what I was seeing, what I had seen before on uh, particular things so that it would kind of help make it a little bit easier for other people. Sangeeta said being unanimous was a difficult concept at best. Because everybody's thinking is not the same. And that was taking us longer for guilty, not guilty, and why we are at guilty and why we are not at guilty. And whoever was giving us that vote saying, yes, I'm not guilty, they couldn't explain themselves why they are saying it. Elizabeth stopped off at Happy Donuts in East Atlanta Village and brought in some treats for that final day. So we had that going for us. All those charges were still written up there on the chalkboard, where Judy and Elizabeth had put them at the outset. I picked up a piece of chalk. I'd stand before the board and point to a charge, one by one. Once we reached a unanimous decision on a charge, I put a check mark by it. If we couldn't agree on a charge, I circled it. Unfortunately, a couple of times we revisited some charges that I thought we'd already agreed upon. Sometimes this was because just one person was having second thoughts. As it turned out, we were able to reach unanimous decisions on each of the 16 counts. By my estimation, we'd been deliberating about five hours. Now, it's time to fill out the verdict sheet. In a trial like this, juries have the verdict form. This one is two pages long. This form says, as to count one, murder, and you have to check a guilty or not guilty, and so on, through the 16 counts. I also have to sign it when we're finished. I know I'm going to go into the courtroom and read the verdict aloud, so I asked the jury to let me rehearse it. I also know from one juror that the lawyers may poll us individually. In other words, asking us whether we agreed with the verdict. The judge usually asks these questions. Was that your verdict in the jury room? Is that now your verdict? I rehearse reading the verdict sheet twice, 
One time I made a mistake on purpose to make sure everyone was in true agreement and totally focused on this decision. But everyone caught it. They told me to stop and correct. I asked everyone if we were ready. They said yes, and one of the jurors flipped the switch on the wall. It was time. I've seen that moment in court many times. You've been sitting there biding your time. The courtroom is quiet, sometimes nearly empty. And then everyone reappears, and the jury comes back, and it's game on. It's a peculiar situation that you really can't experience anywhere else. A man's fate is about to be decided. And you've sat through the trial. You've heard all the evidence. You know what you think about the case. Will the jury get it right? We filed back into the jury box and could feel everyone's eyes on us. The defendant, the family of the victims, the family of the defendant, the judge. Prosecutor Convery and defense attorney Griggs were watching us closely, looking for any clue. I'm focusing in on every single detail. When the paper is handed to the bailiff and the deputy takes it over to the judge, I'm trying to see, can I see any words on it? Can I see it before he reads it? I'm just trying to get anything that will give me a sense of preview. I was looking to see if you all were looking at the family, uh, Reggie's family. A lot of times jurors will come out and look at family members that are in the courtroom. I'm seeing if anybody's willing to make eye contact with me. Usually uh, looking down or looking away or not looking at me is not a good sign. I was trying to gauge the jury when they came out. I've been doing this long enough to know that in trial, when that jury walks out, if they don't look at you, it's going to be a bad day. The judge asked to review the verdict for him. He does that to ensure that it's properly completed. I knew when he handed it back, it'd be my turn to read it. And I knew it'd change the lives of some of the people in the courtroom forever. I've spoken before large crowds and small groups, both friendly and hostile, but I have never been more nervous than I was at this moment. Joe Ransom was also tense. That I got a little quivery on because I wasn't sure how, what the reaction was going to be in the courtroom whenever they started asking. I know you see it in movies sometimes when they read a verdict. People get up and start screaming and showing out, and I was just thinking, okay, who's going to jump up and start hollering and pointing fingers? And it was just kind of unnerving until it was all over with. Sangeeta Patel was looking at the prosecutor. She was praying. Literally, she was praying. Her lips were moving, and her eyes were closed. I always say a little prayer just to like calm myself. Um, and I'm not necessarily praying for a guilty verdict. I'm just praying that you all do the right thing. I begin reading the verdict and I can feel my voice quivering. We, the jury, find. I just, I feel like I'm gonna faint. As to count one, murder. It was very emotional for me. Guilty. I had to hold back tears. As to count two, murder. It was just overwhelming to have that much power over this person's fate. Guilty. We're going to take a short break. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. 
So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. So as Kevin reads the verdict, the jury finds Nicholas Benton guilty of the two most important counts, the malice murders of Reggie Koiku and Quincy Weich. I put my head down. I sort of put my hand on the paper in front of me so that I can make sure, like, this is real. I first turned around and just looked at the family, and I made eye contact with his mom, and she gave me this just look of <laughs> just the gratitude, and it's just the whole reason I do this job. Defense attorney Griggs said he felt like he knew what was coming. Remember when he said he can read a jury when it comes back into the room? And so when he walked out and nobody looked over there, I already knew what was about to happen. The rest of the verdict followed. Guilty on four counts of felony murder. Two were the killing of Koiku and Weish during the commission of an attempted armed robbery. The other two involved killings during an aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. The jury acquitted Benton of being part of a drug deal. Since he was not guilty of the drug transaction, he was also not guilty on the two felony murder charges related to the drug transaction. Remember, this was a drug deal that was never going to happen, and never did. We had to decide whether we believed that Benton was at the scene. Different jurors had doubts about pieces of evidence that put him there. You'll recall that evidence included the Valero video, the testimony of Carlton Redding, the driver of the Bonneville, the cell phone triangulation, the backpack Benton carried that was found in the Bonneville, our observation of his walk matching the gait of the guy in the video. While some jurors had a problem with one of those things, in the end, we came to the all-important conclusion that he was there. The prosecution's story about his whereabouts was logical and believable in its whole. Once we agreed he was there, it wasn't difficult to reach a verdict on the charges involving Reggie Koiku. The evidence showed he planned to set up a meeting for a drug deal. The video showed they met, and Benton directed Koiku over to the Burger King. The Burger King video shows the shooting happens within minutes, even if Benton is invisible. That's how we got to the verdict of guilty on the charges involving Reggie Koiku's death. The charges involving Quincy Weish were more complicated for some of the jurors. But guilty on 13 of the 16 charges, complete win for the prosecution. You said the jury split on whether Benton intended to kill his friend, Fat Weich. Is that right? Yes. That took up a lot of time and was by far the biggest challenge we faced. Some jurors felt strongly they couldn't convict Benton if it was an accident. We had even gone back out to ask the judge about it and then we debated it further in the jury room. We did this primarily to convince one juror in particular. He was holding out. What your fellow juror was tripping over was the legal principle of transferred intent. It sounds a little complicated, but it really isn't. In fact, the judge instructed the jury on it, and I quote, If one intentionally commits an unlawful act, yet the act harmed a victim other than the one intended, it is not a defense if the defendant did not intend to harm the actual person injured, unquote. In other words, it really didn't matter whether Benton intended to shoot Weish. Even if it was an accident, in this case, it was murder. I didn't find that to be a difficult concept to grasp. 
I confess that I grew extremely frustrated with that one juror because the law was clear. The judge's explanation was clear. I'm sure every jury has a point in its deliberations where things could fall apart. This was ours. We were tired. We had a holdout whose point of view was demonstrably wrong. I considered shutting him down, but I worried that could imperil all the agreements we had already reached. So I sought to keep the debate at the appropriate temperature, hoping he would accept the law. He finally did. Elizabeth said she initially struggled with it too. And so deliberate intent is the words are in that charge. So a lot of people got stuck on that, including myself in the beginning. But then we started reading about uh, transferred intent. I realized legally it did not matter if he meant to kill his friend. And although I knew in my heart I did not think he meant to kill his friend, I knew legally he was guilty of it. Joe Ransom summarized what went on in the jury room pretty well. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, dispute over him doing it on purpose. The reason I don't think he did, the guy was his best friend. He was with him in the whole situation. I think, in my opinion, and there was a few of the other uh, jurors that had the same one, all he done when he started shooting, he just caught a glimpse of somebody running, and he unloaded. He thought it was may have been the guy driving. He didn't know who it was. Whether or not you intentionally done it, if you were just trying to hurt anybody, it falls under that category, and you're still guilty of it, regardless. Detective Burhalter had a theory on why Benton panicked the way he did. So the theory that I developed, and we may never know for sure, is that Nicholas Benton had probably had success. You know, he didn't have an extensive criminal history, but he had probably had success with showing up with a bag that looked like it had marijuana in it and then pulling out a gun and robbing someone. But I think this may have been the first time that the would-be robbery victim made the choice to fight back. You're talking someone that had worked in security and was a bouncer at a club and was also uh, supposedly a uh, former bodybuilder, had a gun of his own, so he went ahead and fought back. This is the first time that I think that someone fought back against uh, Nicholas Benton, and I think he just started shooting. You convicted Benton of the most serious of crimes, but you let him off on the drug charges. What was your thinking on that? We had a couple of reasons. One was practical. Here's Judy. If there's no marijuana, he certainly had no intent to sell marijuana. I mean, to me, it was just, duh. And here was the other reason, also from Judy. To me, it's a human gesture to say, you know, we can be, be kind to him in some way if we can. That's how I reacted to that. There did seem to be a very human need among some jurors not to convict Benton of every charge. Perhaps it wouldn't be bad to throw him a bone. As a foreman, I figured we had already made the most difficult decisions. I chose not to get hung up on this, to let Benton skate on the drug charges. He already had hell on his hands anyway. There was one other very real consideration. I think the jurors wanted to make it clear that we had thought carefully about the case, that they had done the work. We didn't just go into the jury room, vote guilty on everything, and that was that. Well, how important did Benton's walk turn out to be? It was huge. The central question of the case was whether Nick Benton had been at the scene of the killings. If you believed he was there, it wasn't a big leap to conclude that he had also pulled the trigger. If you didn't believe he was there, then he was not guilty on all charges. 
So, was that Nicholas Benton wearing a backpack and walking through the Valero lot or not? We ended up being persuaded that Benton was in the videos. And seeing his walk on the videos and outside the courtroom was a big factor in our decision. Here's Elizabeth. The walk, it was so distinct. If he didn't have that walk, I'm not sure we would have all been 100% sure. Afterward, the judge came into the jury room, thanked us for our service, and asked whether we had any questions. It was late by then, probably 7.30 or 8 on a Friday night, so we didn't ask many. Some of us hung around and talked to Convery and Burhalter. As is the habit of any good journalist, I grabbed every piece of paper I had in front of me in the jury room and put it in my bag. I was sure I'd be writing a follow-up column about this experience. Of course, I had to show all the paperwork to Bill Rankin. He flipped through the documents, unimpressed, until he came to one, and then he looked kind of horrified. Yeah, after looking at the copy of the indictment a few seconds, I suddenly realized it wasn't a copy. There was the blue stamp right there on the front page. This was the original indictment, a critical piece of the case file. At least, that's where it's supposed to be. So yeah, I ask you, Kevin, what are you doing with this? Well, it was in the jury room, so I just scooped it up with everything else. At Bill's urging, I called Judge Goger's office. His staff asked me to courier the indictment to his chambers immediately. Of course, I made copies for Bill and me first. We're going to take another short break. The only thing left to be decided in the state versus Nicholas Benton was his sentence. I waited the rest of the summer for it to be scheduled. Finally, it was on October 20th. By now, we'd planned this podcast. We already knew what the court reporter would say if we asked for audio at the sentencing hearing. That would be no. Exactly. So we filed a formal request to Judge Goger to let us videotape and audio tape the proceedings ourselves. He let us do just that. So we'd like to take you to another place you've probably never been. The sentencing hearing for a man who's been convicted of murdering two people. Bill and I sat together during the hearing, making notes and observing the people who were there. And you can see the video from the sentencing on AJCBreakdown.com. Good afternoon, Your Honor. We're here before the court um, for sentencing on the state of Georgia versus Mr. Nicholas Benton in indictment number 16SC146365. The jury having returned a verdict on 13 of 16 counts in the original indictment. The only real issue at the sentencing was whether Judge Goger would agree to the state's recommendation of life in prison without parole or defense attorney Griggs' request for life with the possibility of parole. I attended the sentencing hearing with Bill and jurors Judy and Elizabeth. This time, Nicholas Benton didn't look like a lawyer. He was in a blue jumpsuit with the words, Fulton County jail inmate stamped on the back. He was also in shackles. We were expecting Goger to simply hand down his sentence, and that would be that. But this proceeding turned out to be much more. Prosecutor Connery told Goger that Reggie Koiku's mom wanted to be heard. Her name is Florelle Jean-Pierre, and you heard from her briefly in episode one. I am the mother of Reginald Antoine Kwaku. On October the 4th, 1991, my son was placed in my arms for the first time. Just minutes after, after he took his breath, he was so precious. His face was flawless. His skin was soft. And I whispered to him, my son, I love you, son. 
for the first time. On April 24, 2016, I was led to a crime scene where my beautiful son was dead in a car. This time, his face was not flawless. His skin was not soft. Only his body was riddled with bullets. And I whispered, I love you, son, for the last time. And while the memories of Reggie are so sweet, and with them comes the realization that he is gone. And each time that realization hits my heart, it is devastating. Reggie was my son, my firstborn son, and he did not deserve to be so cruelly taken. I do not deserve to have to live the rest of my life with this pain and without my child. I grieve for me, so I will never be able to have a grandchild from Reggie. I will never be able to hold him in my arm. I grieve. Because every holiday, every birthday, that my son is not here, a piece of my heart dies. <laughs> At this point, Judge Goger gently tells the stricken woman to pause, to take a moment to compose herself. A member of the DA's victim witness office walks up to the podium and hands her a tissue. When I saw him last at his funeral, I promised him that justice will be done. Reggie was not a perfect person. He did not deserve what happened to him. He did not deserve to be executed in this brutal manner. There are no winners here. There is no winner here. Two lives lost, three family grievings for their own reason. All I ask to have some closure is justice for my son, justice for Reggie. The hearing also allows us to learn secondhand what Nicholas Benton thought of our verdict. Here's defense attorney Griggs. Uh, Over the course of the last year, I've gotten to know Nicholas Benton. I've gotten to know his family, um, Mr. and Mrs. Benton in the back. And I've gotten to know the facts and circumstances of this case. And um, I must say this is one of the most difficult cases I've ever had to be a part of. I know that from the first moment I met with Nicholas, he he maintained his innocence and he maintains his innocence to this day. Um, He respects the verdict of the jury, but he respectfully disagrees. I've been practicing law for about 13 years. I've never seen a case where forensic evidence points one way and the jury's verdict points another. Fat Weich's mother did not attend the hearing. She testified at trial for the defense and said she didn't think Benton killed her son. Prosecutor Kara Convery later made note of this. And Quincy's life had value, too, and I ended up getting closer with Quincy through this trial um, because I felt so bad that I had to be the one arguing that his life meant something, that his mom wasn't going to do that for you all, and no other witness would. Um, And so when you all came back as the guilty on both malice, it just made me, it reaffirms every time um, that life has value. At the sentencing hearing, Griggs asks Goger to give Benton a chance to leave prison one day on parole, not in a body bag. Justice would be fitting for him to have the ability at some point in his life to be a free man. He's 27 years old. If he was sentenced to life um, with the possibility of parole, he would have served a, a debt to society, but also be able to live some semblance of life. 
Griggs tells Judge Goger that Nicholas's mom wants to be heard, too. She's seated in the same row as I am. I stand and move out of her way as she walks right past me on her way to the podium. Here's Vonda Benton. I sympathize with um, Regina's mother, and I feel just like she does about my son as well. And he was born August the 8th, 1990, and I feel the exact same way. Her son did not deserve to be killed, along with fat didn't deserve to be killed. But only thing I know for sure is that my son, Nicholas Rasheed Benton, did not kill those young men at that scene. And I know that this case, I just don't know what happened. It's almost like a nightmare for me and my family. We have been going through as well. My son did not do this. My son has always been a good child. He's always been a good young man. He's always been a respectable young man. He's not a killer. He's, he's not a killer. He's not a monster. The jurors that was not that of his peers, of his peer group, they didn't look like him. They wasn't his age. It just was not fair. I want the killers for Reginald and Fats to be caught at the same time. But it's not Nicholas. So it's, it is three lives, three families that's messed up. It's three families that's destroyed. At this point, Benton could have addressed Goger, but he chose once again to maintain his silence. In fact, the only time I've heard him speak is in that audio obtained for this podcast, the detective's interview of him at his parents' home. Under Georgia law, if the state isn't seeking the death penalty, juries have no say in the imposition of a sentence. If you're convicted of murder, then you get an automatic life sentence. The state may request that the court impose life without the possibility of parole, which the state did. The judge had instructed the jury not to concern itself with punishment. But of course, we thought about it a lot. So it fell to Goger to hand down the sentence. Before imposing it, he had some words to say. You know, the word tragedy has been used by everyone who took the microphone today. And unfortunately, in courtrooms all over the state, that, that word is used a lot in incidents like this. I don't know uh, what it is that somehow allows our kids to think it's okay to have a gun or to use it. I, I don't know if it's the games or it's the television, or, but I am convinced that if people had the opportunity to come to events like this and see the real impact, the real effect that shooting someone and killing someone taking away their life, taking away their life. I mean, they're, it's gone now. They're not coming back. Maybe that would be the, the thing that might make them understand. There's a song, an old song. There's a line in it, when will they ever learn? You know, when will they ever learn? I ask myself that question all the time. When will they ever learn? I'm satisfied that the jury listened very carefully to the evidence in this case. You've got people that paid attention Listen carefully to every word these witnesses had to say. And they were told the only way they could come back with a conviction, with a, a guilty verdict, is if they found you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And they did. Goger chose not to follow the state's recommendation. He sentenced Benton to life with the possibility of parole. 
In Georgia, that means Nicholas Benton will not be eligible for parole for 30 years, when he's 57. After the sentencing hearing, Bill and I witnessed a brief and moving tableau in the hallway outside the courtroom. Elizabeth and Florel Jean-Pierre, Reggie's mom, caught sight of each other. Mrs. Jean-Pierre hesitated only a moment, then walked up to Elizabeth and wrapped her arms around her. During a warm embrace that lasted several seconds, Koiku's mom simply said, Thank you. So, Bill, I mentioned several times that the prosecutor, Kara Convery, seemed familiar to me. Yeah, what, what was that all about? We finally figured it out after the trial. I left a message for Convery to give me a call as we prepared to do this podcast. And when she did, she left a message with her phone number. It had a 937 area code. So when I called her back, I found out she's from the Dayton, Ohio area. That's where you're from. Right. What I finally figured out was it was the way she talked. She talked like someone from Ohio. People had been around most of my life. That was it. Okay, Kevin, I got one more question. It's a money question. You just convicted somebody of murder of two people. And as we've said, no DNA, no fingerprints, no murder weapon. Getaway car was never found. The killings occurred in the Burger King parking lot where you see the blue Bonneville and the black G8 pull up. You don't see who gets out of that G8, but we know that somebody gets in the Bonneville and two people are killed. Are you absolutely sure Nicholas Benton pulled the trigger? Bill, I believe we came to the right verdict. When you put the pieces of evidence together, the circumstances together, it leads to this obvious conclusion. Of course, I still think all the time about whether we got it right, whether it was the right verdict. But every time I run it through my head, I believe we got it right. Our criminal justice system takes a lot of criticism and often deserves it. Listeners to Breakdown know a lot about that. But we tend to forget what we have in a trial by jury. Human rights attorney and law professor Steve Bright puts it in the proper frame. The jury dates all the way back to the Magna Carta and had been used in England and of course was brought over to this country and has been a part of the legal system in the United States from the very start. I think the jury is the most democratic institution uh, in government uh, that we have today. One thing that makes the jury so democratic is the requirement of unanimity. All 12 jurors must agree. So each and every one of those jurors is just as powerful as the other 11. So if a juror wants to be heard, the others have to sit there and hear what he has to say. And you don't reach a verdict or the jury doesn't reach a verdict until all 12 people are in agreement. Uh, That's a tremendous tool for giving everybody a voice and for making everybody consider all the different angles and possibilities before a verdict is reached. And when 12 people all agree on something, you can feel reasonably confident that they probably have it right. I think the jury system is so important, as the Supreme Court said in one of its cases, because it's a safeguard against uh, not only a corrupt and overzealous prosecutor, but a biased or eccentric judge. Many judges who sit in case after case after case become very cynical, uh, very hostile to the people that uh, are accused of crimes. And so with a jury, you have a completely fresh group of people that don't know the defendant, don't know the witnesses, hopefully don't know the lawyers in the case, and can make a determination just based on the evidence without any prior attitude about the parties. And here's Benton's lawyer Griggs 
who said he's glad we're doing this podcast because it might inspire more people to serve on juries. Everybody tries to find a way off the jury. And, and people don't understand this is the most American of rights. And that's the right to sit on a jury. I just hope people understand that even though you may not like the system and some of the outcomes of the system, it's the most fundamental of American liberties. And we have to take it seriously and stop trying to get out of jury service. When you're picking a jury from a large metro area, you're likely to end up with 12 very different people. Different backgrounds, different voices, different ages, different beliefs. Just like Kevin's jury. After the trial, I sat down with Joe Ransom. And I asked him, what would he tell someone called to jury service? Get him a plane ticket overseas. <laughs> no, uh, I actually had a friend, what I told him, if you get on one, you got to be ready to not butt heads, but deal with different people from different walks of life, like different neighborhood or where they've grown up, and you're going to have a bunch of different personalities, and it's going to be very interesting. I also asked the other jurors for their thoughts. It was very serious for me, and I thought about it for a long time afterwards, and I still do occasionally. But I think ultimately we did a, a good job, and definitely he had he had a fair go of things with us. But based on the evidence, it was pretty clear that, that he was guilty. I'm so sensitive that, oh, my God, I put somebody in jail and his life is all ruined. It was mainly our verdict that actually shook me up, and I'm still shaken up. I still cry whenever I think about it, and I still think that, no, there has to be something more. I feel sorry for Nick. I feel very sorry for him. I think it's a terrible waste of his life. It's a terrible waste to society, the loss of his freedom, his life, his, any potential he would ever have. I was very impressed with my fellow jurors' dedication, seriousness. I felt like there was, it was a friendly rapport. I thought everyone was nice to everyone else when we were just hanging out and we weren't supposed to be talking about the case. And generally, we, we respected those rules and didn't talk about the case. And I thought everybody was friendly and, and polite to one another. And it just felt very comfortable. I thought everyone being together, everyone was interested in one another and talking to one another. And I thought that was nice. Being on this jury reminded me of one of the most formative experiences I had as a young journalist. For a brief period, in the beginning of my career in Ohio, I was a police reporter. As is typical for a police reporter, I was assigned to cover a homicide that had happened overnight. A young woman was strangled and found dead in the basement of an abandoned apartment building. I started out with the police report. I interviewed the homicide supervisor. He told me it looked like the woman was a drug addict and a prostitute and was likely trading sex for drugs. Things took a violent turn the cops were working the case. Police headquarters was a comfortable place for me. My dad was a cop and I'd been around cops all my life. I figured I'd done the reporting I needed. I walked the few blocks back to the newspaper and wrote the story. My editor, who is still a dear friend of mine, came over to my desk. He told me, go to the woman's home and see what I could find out. I objected. The cops thought it was routine and would be quickly solved. She was a junkie and a prostitute. What would I learn of value to our readers by knocking on her door, I asked. He ordered me to go. I drove out to a rough neighborhood, scared and uncomfortable. I circled the block a few times, planning to tell my boss no one was home. 
Then a woman came out of the house listed as the victim's address. She waved at me. I stopped and got out of the car. She was the victim's mother, and she thought I was a cop or the building supervisor, and I could tell her what happened. Apparently, the cops hadn't. So I did, after letting her know I worked for the newspaper. And she shared some information with me, including that her daughter had a young son. That was among some great details for my story. But that experience taught me that everyone has a mom and dad, and maybe a brother, sister, or child. Every life is precious to someone. I reflect on that experience now because on this jury, it was our job to remember that. As a journalist, I document people's lives and the events that affect them. As a juror, it was my job to write a final chapter for the lives of Quincy Weish and Reggie Koiku, no matter how difficult. To make sure the formal records of our society acknowledged their deaths and reminded all of us that a life matters, so their stories would be known and understood, so people who cared about them might have some justice. I also wrote a chapter in the life of Nicholas Benton. He's 27 the same age as my eldest child. He'll be eligible for parole when he's a little older than I am now. That's a lot of living he'll do, all of it in prison. I think about that all the time, but I believe our verdict was correct. So if that jury summons shows up in your mailbox, go ahead and let yourself feel angry, inconvenienced, and put upon. But then think about the sacred calling that it might be. It could change your life. It changed mine. You've been listening to Breakdown, reported and narrated by Kevin Riley and Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallex. Sound by Chris Basta at Bare Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Original music composed and performed by Chris Basta, Bo Emerson, and Billy Guin. Special thanks to Bert Roten, Monica Richardson, Mark Wallagore, Ryan Horn, and all the great people at the AJC, plus Chris Nicholson, Buddy Hall, and Judge Robert McBurney. 